Hey, it's Greg Brown. Grab your logbook, because it's time for another cockpit adventure from the flying carpet. I'm an aviation author, adventure columnist, photographer, former National Flight Instructor of the Year, and Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. The Flying Carpet is a four-place single-engine light airplane. In it, my wife Jean and I have long traveled the North American continent, searching behind clouds for the real America, and experiencing aerial adventures like today's all along the way. Learn more at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, where you can also see photos from most episodes. And I'd appreciate your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. You know, most people, when they become pilots of light airplanes, they might kid themselves that it's about efficiency or convenience. And there is a little bit of that. Sometimes you save time. Sometimes you make special trips that you couldn't make easily by airlines. But the biggest thing is the adventure of the journey to where you're going. Every now and then, Gene and I get asked, what's the most memorable journey that you've made by airplane in all those decades of flying? Today's story is about the journey that always comes to mind when we're asked that question. It's not that one special thing happened that was scary or educational or beautiful. It's more a matter that this particular trip was filled with all kinds of wacky and beautiful and crazy elements all glued together into one long trip, and it never could have happened in any other vehicle besides a light airplane. So I hope you'll enjoy it. The other thing I want to mention ahead of time, this episode is a bit longer than my normal podcast episode, so you'll want to allow yourself a little more time and not be in a rush. Okay, everyone, hop aboard my flying carpet, buckle your seatbelts, and prepare for takeoff on today's adventure, Long Journey North. Clear prop. Don was at the island that Saturday, his bit of paradise on the Canadian side of Lake of the Woods, when the pain began. Fortunately, Gene's brother Dave was there with his wife, Barb. They rushed Don by boat and car to Kenora, Ontario for emergency treatment. From there, he was airlifted to Winnipeg. I hardly knew Don, my mother-in-law Marge's longtime companion. All I knew was that he was a retired butcher and grocer from Baudette, Minnesota, played the sax, and that his idea of heaven was fishing from his island cabin. Once or twice a year when they wintered in Arizona, Gene and I would meet them for dinner. I once flew them to visit an ill friend in Sholo, Arizona, and another time to all-you-can-eat crab legs night at the Sedona Airport restaurant. Although Don and I had little in common, he colored our gatherings with cordial North Country humor. Sometimes they came to our house for Thanksgiving or Christmas holidays, bringing along a big fryer for Don's special deep-fried turkey recipe. Several times after they returned to their Sun City West winter quarters on the far side of Phoenix, Jean received a harried call from her mother. Oh no, Don forgot his glasses at your house and he can't do anything without them. Then I'd be assigned to rush to the post office and mail the glasses back. Oh well, 
We figured it was just one of those quirky things that happens with people as they get older. Despite the doctor's best efforts, including emergency heart bypass surgery, the news came on Monday that Don had passed away. Marge traveled from Winnipeg with Don's body to Baudette, where he was to be buried the following Saturday, July 3rd. Of course, Jean wanted to be there to support her mother, but that raised travel challenges because it fell on Independence Day weekend. Baudette lies halfway between International Falls, Minnesota and Fargo, North Dakota on the Canadian border. By airlines from Phoenix, she'd need to fly into Bemidji or International Falls and then drive a rental car for several hours to Baudette. Given the holiday weekend, we quickly learned that airline tickets were running over $1,000 per person, with few seats available on such short notice. It turned out that only two individual seats to Bemidji remained one on Tuesday afternoon and the other early Wednesday morning, following which the first seat home meant waiting almost a week. Next, we learned that no rental cars remained in Bemidji for the drive to Baudette. This is a nightmare, Jean told me. How long would it take to fly there ourselves? Obviously, she hadn't looked at a map. From Arizona to northern Minnesota? That's a very long way, I told her. Picture the U.S.-Canadian border running straight all the way from the Pacific Ocean to the Great Lakes, except for that little bump atop Minnesota. Baudette is right there. That's Lake of the Woods in that bump, along with a little piece of land called the Northwest Angle, connected to the United States only by water. This from our home in Phoenix, not far from the Mexican border. How long would it take to fly there, she asked. We're talking 11 or 12 hours each way, I told her, plus thunderstorms dominate the Great Plains at this time of year. Frankly, I hadn't even considered the possibility of flying ourselves. Well, if going by airline means five depressing days alone, Greg, not to mention car and hotel logistical problems, I'd rather team up in the flying carpet and enjoy some adventures together along the way. Tentatively, I looked up Baudette International Airport in the airport directory. There's something exciting for pilots about going to a new airport, a notch in the pistol or whatever. When you haven't been to a given airport, you sort of hate to turn down the opportunity. And if there's any special feature of that airport, landing there becomes even more compelling. So Baudette's airport diagram showed two runways, one with a solid outline and the other dotted. The latter signified a water runway in the adjacent Rainy River. Float plane pilots landing on the Rainy River water runway can taxi to the north side and clear Canadian customs, said the fine print. Now, if that wasn't reason enough to fly across the entire country, and we weren't even flying a float plane. We had nothing else planned for the coming July 4th weekend, and this was starting to sound like adventure. Intrigued, I phoned Baudette International Airport and spoke to Tom, the airport manager. Folks up there speak in few words. Tom, my wife and I are thinking about flying up there in a 182. Yeah? You guys don't have anything special going on this coming holiday weekend that would make it difficult to fly in, do you? Nope. Well, we're coming up for a funeral. Can we rent a car someplace? Come on up, he said. There are no rental cars within 50 miles, but you can use the courtesy car. 
For those who aren't familiar, there's an enduring tradition at small airports of having a free loaner car for visiting pilots who want to run into town. These airport cars, or courtesy cars as they're sometimes called, are usually run-out municipal vehicles and therefore notorious for their poor condition, especially at rural airports. But for the price of a tank of gas, you can get around. But we'll be there for three days, I told Tom. Airport courtesy cars you usually borrow for an hour or two just to go to lunch. That's okay, he said. It gets little use up here, so you're welcome to take it. Great, I told him. Would you like my name and phone number? Nope, no need for that. I'll remember. Just keep in mind the car is nothing fancy. It's not an airport car unless the windshield's cracked, I quipped. Then you won't be disappointed, said Tom. So I said to Jean, well, if you really want to do this, and I pulled out the weather map, only to discover thunderstorms extending from the Arizona-New Mexico border all the way across New Mexico, Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota. The entire 1,300 nautical mile route was lined with thunderstorms, and I wondered if my computer might be frozen because the prog charts for the next five days looked identical. I invited Jean to have a look. That does look bad, she said. But we could probably get there, couldn't we? Clearly, she really wanted to go and wanted me to join her. And of course, that made me feel good. But good vibes can't vanquish thunderstorms. We planned to launch on Wednesday morning, and I booked her a backup airline seat in case we couldn't safely depart in the flying carpet. When Tuesday's weather showed no sign of improvement, I told Jean, I know it's important for you to be at this funeral. But this is a really bad weather situation over a very long distance at the worst time of summer. If you want to take our airplane, I'm all for trying it. But if you want to be certain of making the funeral, you must go by airline because this is the last available seat. But we'd likely make it by flying carpet, right? She asked. I mean, safely, of course. We have three whole days to get there. Probably, I told her, three days is a long time. But you and your family would have to be prepared for the distinct possibility that we get stuck somewhere and miss the memorial service. Buying an airline ticket after today would be impossible. I'm willing to take that chance, she told me. At least this way we'll go together and have some fun along the way. We'll go by flying carpet and make the most of a sad mission. At that point, I had no charts and hadn't visited the airplane for a week. So I drove to the airport for a serious pre-flight and a panic buying spree on visual and instrument flying charts, which were still on paper at the time of this adventure. I didn't expect to get past Santa Fe when we took flight Wednesday morning. Thunderstorms would likely block the few passes available to light aircraft through the front range. Arizona still looked clear early this morning, but scattered showers were already forming in New Mexico and Colorado, and from Albuquerque on, the plains were already brimming with thunderstorms. For those not familiar, the high Rockies in Colorado are not very manageable flying light airplanes unless you can go to 15,000 feet with a turbocharged airplane. In perfect weather with light winds, we could fly northeast through mountain passes over Alamosa to Pueblo, which was the most direct route for us. But more often when heading northeast from Arizona, we steer east to Las Vegas, New Mexico, 
turn the corner at the edge of the Great Plains and proceed along the front range northbound or northeastbound. We'd be committed to one or the other of those routes once reaching northeast Arizona, but with weather so changeable, I decided to postpone that decision till the last moment. There are few airports between Phoenix and northeast Arizona, but fortunately the weather was currently good for this first part of the route. So I said to Gene, we'll just take off northeastward and see how far we can get. At takeoff time, the weather actually looked better on the Colorado route over the high passes near Alamosa, which is more direct and very beautiful. So we filed to go that way. I told Gene, however, that we wouldn't make the final decision whether to go up over Pueblo or towards Santa Fe and through the Glorieta Pass until well along when we were armed with the latest weather. So we took off northeastward. As we approached Gallup, New Mexico, however, the latest reports suggested weather might not be so good in the mountain passes after all, and we sure didn't want to tackle those in less than perfect conditions. Flying via Albuquerque now sounded better, plus there's lower terrain and more landing options that way. So we changed our route and turned eastward. We started seeing some cumulus clouds around Albuquerque, but felt we were doing pretty well considering we hadn't expected to make it past there. We continued through Glorieta Pass into the Great Plains at Las Vegas, New Mexico, and turned north toward Minnesota. At least the plains would offer more landing options and more room to navigate around weather. As soon as we turned, however, we could see big buildups and nasty-looking stuff ahead. So I radioed Flightwatch which in those pre-cockpit weather days offered pilots weather radar guidance. There are widespread thunderstorms throughout the whole plains area, said the specialist, and they're expected to continue developing all afternoon. Returning to the Albuquerque Center controller who was providing me flight following, a real nice guy, I asked, what weather are you painting along our route? How far do you think we can get? Based on what I see now, he told me, you can probably make it to Raton, New Mexico, or maybe Trinidad, Colorado. Sure enough, approaching Trinidad an hour later, we could see dark rain shafts threatening from beyond. In chatting with the controller, I learned he was a recent private pilot. I wouldn't go past Trinidad, he urged. It looks really bad north of there. To which I answered that I understood and we would indeed land at Trinidad. Gene and I were just pondering how we'd get into town because it's some distance from the airport and whether we could get a room in Trinidad when the controller issued a frequency change to Denver Center. With Trinidad Airport coming into sight, I wondered aloud to Gene whether to even bother radioing Denver Center. They'd only be covering us a few miles before we'd land. But for the heck of it, I checked in. What are your intentions, asked the controller. That was likely because I'd changed our flight plan destination based on conditions several times during the morning's flight and had already overflown where I said we were landing, which was probably Santa Fe. We're headed for northern Minnesota, I replied, but I understand there's lots of weather ahead. The previous controller suggested we land at Trinidad. You don't see a way we could proceed further north, do you? That shouldn't be a problem, she replied to our surprise and then offered two alternate routings to bypass the weather. There's a big gap 30 degrees to your left, or you could go around the weather to your right. Either way, then head up over Hugo VOR, and from there it looks pretty good for continuing north. 
Here, the last controller had just told me it was impossible and actually sounded a little panicky that we might continue. You know sometimes how controllers get emotionally involved in your flight? That doesn't happen in SoCal and New York airspace where they don't have time to talk to you much. But out here in the hinterlands, you can really develop a relationship. I remember one time shooting an instrument approach into Saginaw, Michigan years ago, and the same controller we were talking to cleared an airplane for an approach hundreds of miles away into Watertown, South Dakota. Now think about that. Saginaw, Michigan is in Lower Michigan, and the same controller was covering that big a territory. So that's why I say, you know, you get to travel with them, you get to know them. In any case, I was so surprised at the Denver Center's controller's suggestion that I switched back to FlightWatch for another opinion, and I said, The Denver Center controller seems to think I could fly either along the front range near Pueblo and then cut over to Hugo or bypass the weather to the east. What do you think? He looked at his radar and said, The cells are well organized into clusters. There are some good-sized openings between them that would probably work. We had a lightning detector in our airplane to corroborate the weather reports. So here we're looking at this nasty stuff right in front of us, and we could see it looked okay to the sides. Now, based on radar information, we knew there was nothing immediately beyond it. So we proceeded on the Denver Center controller's advice and circumvented that immediate cluster of thunderstorms. I chose to go around to the east so as to not get hemmed in between weather and the mountains. It turned out this was as close as we ever got to any threatening weather. Thanks to guidance from ATC, Flight Watch, and some 50-mile detours, we gradually bypassed all of it. We just kept talking to people and keeping the big picture alive, ready to detour if necessary. Our Model 182 carries a lot of gas, 88 gallons, so you can fly some six hours. So while a 100-mile detour is literally a pain in the rear end, we could safely do it. Later came a new problem. Having flown all the way from Arizona to southern Nebraska, it was time to consider a fuel stop. While there were plenty of airports around, none were attended and this was unfamiliar territory. So at the time, there was no way to know for sure which airports might offer self-service fuel versus those that did not. On we continued, trying to radio various airports without success and unable to raise any other nearby aircraft on frequency. I hesitated to randomly land at any of them because if there was no fuel, we'd consume even more departing again. The nearest airport I knew for sure offered fuel was North Platte. So with our fuel status soon to become alarming, I calculated distance against fuel on board and throttled back to best economy power getting there. The fact that I had manually checked fuel quantity before takeoff and over years of ownership had regularly calibrated the fuel gauges with a dipstick was all that made this possible. While not a true close call, it was the only time in decades of flying I've ever become seriously concerned about running out of fuel. Of course, had we lacked fuel to safely make North Platte, we'd have landed at whatever nearby airport and taken our chances on getting stranded there. Eventually, I'd learn a better way to handle such situations, but that's a story for another time. To our delight, we made it all the way to Fargo, North Dakota that evening, only 150 miles short of our destination. Just how far north we'd flown didn't sink in until we dined al fresco in twilight at 9.30 p.m. 
it was still light some two hours beyond sunset back home. Having made such good progress, we were now way ahead of schedule and were faced with arriving at the tiny town of Baudette, population 1100, three days before the funeral. So we decided to fly up the road to Grand Forks the next morning and tour the University of North Dakota Aerospace Program. The highlight of that tour proved to be a full-size air traffic control simulator buried in the campus building. Picture a large room with 360 degrees of projection screens canted like real control tower windows. These wraparound windows offered unrestricted views of two gigantic parallel runways pulsing with arriving and departing aircraft, taxiways complete with taxiing airplanes, and a bustling airline parking ramp and terminal. All were being controlled from this tower simulator deep in the bowels of a building. What sorts of situations can you simulate here, I asked. Hey, look what's coming in, gestured a student assigned to demonstrate features. Suddenly out the window appeared a giant C-5 transport inbound to land, one engine trailing smoke. Next, he pointed out a B-1 bomber taxiing for takeoff among various airliners. When I asked how the tower trainees simulate communications with all those faux airplanes, Gene and I were shown a nearby room where a gaggle of flight students at computer terminals manipulated the digital airplanes according to a script and played the roles of their pilots talking to tower controllers. Nearby was another room simulating approach control radar. There a young woman vectored arriving and departing instrument traffic with handoffs to and from tower controllers. As with the real thing, a radar repeater was located in the tower cab. I could have stayed there all day. But now it was time to proceed to Baudette. So we took off and steered northeast into Minnesota. Countless silvery lakes appeared, and farmlands gave way to swamps. Could those possibly be ultralight aircraft beneath us, I wondered aloud? Gene looked, too but we couldn't imagine why pilots would be flying such vehicles over water in such remote areas. Only when Gene retrieved the binoculars from the glove compartment did we realize we were actually watching giant herons, swans, cranes, eagles, and pelicans circling over the rich waters thousands of feet below. Then, 50 by 80 mile Lake of the Woods came into view. To parched Arizonans like us, it seemed a great ocean. We joined downwind over the rainy river for Baudette's paved runway, our headsets filled with pilot voices on advisory frequency. But none were landing at Baudette. Rather, they were seaplanes broadcasting landings at inlets and bays on Lake of the Woods. Floatplanes and amphibians filled Baudette's parking ramp when we landed. This is nothing like Arizona, said Gene, as we tied down between a Cessna Caravan turboprop floatplane and a gigantic derelict Nordine Norseman, also on floats. It was like arriving in another world. Gene's brothers, Steve and Dave, waited to greet us when we got out. And Tom... The airport manager came out and introduced himself with keys to Baudette's charismatic courtesy car. 
Now, Gene and I have seen our share of memorable airport cars over the years, but none matched this big old Ford. The windshield was indeed cracked, and all the way across, not some wimpy little hairline blemish. Duct tape supported the outside rearview mirror. Overflowing ashtrays added character. And the check engine light, we soon learned, remained eternally on. Duct tape also wrapped part of the steering wheel. I couldn't imagine its purpose, but dared not remove it. Errant wires draped the accelerator pedal to entangle the driver's feet. And I still don't understand the mechanics of this. But for some reason, the car's electrical fuse box flopped loose in the back seat. And yes, it was connected. Also in back were several posters, which upon unrolling proved to depict nearly naked biker girls standing on Harley motorcycles. Uh, Gene would not let me keep one of those. Most memorably, the graphics from the car's previous life had never been entirely erased. Emblazoned on its doors and trunk were the partially scrubbed but still entirely legible words, Lake of the Woods Sheriff. But the car ran, and it was free. So we loaded the sheriff's car with our bags, cranked it up, and drove out to Don's place, which proved to be a double-wide trailer on the bank of the Rainy River. We've all heard jokes about the state bird of Minnesota being a mosquito, and based on our visit, I believe it's true. We gathered with Marge and Jean's relatives on Don's treasured outdoor deck. There we met Don's son, Russ, for the first time, and his daughters-in-law, Sue and Bonita. As we told stories and swatted mosquitoes and scanned Canada across the rainy river, Don's memory fished just a few feet away on the old broken-down pier where he kept his boat. And you know, Gene and I felt like we started getting to know Don in a small way. We had met him only when he and Marge wintered in Arizona and never seen him here in his element. With time on our hands the next morning, Gene and I decided to visit Lake of the Woods. Now, Arizona has only two natural lakes, Stoneman Lake in a volcanic crater and Mormon Lake, both ephemeral lakes near Flagstaff that would probably qualify as ponds anywhere else. Only four rivers flow year-round in Arizona. So when we encounter a 55-by-80-mile lake, it gets our attention. Gene and I drove up there, dipped our feet in the water, and wandered the beach. When big thunderstorms started rolling in, we rushed through heavy rain back to the car for shelter. Only then did we discover another quirk of the sheriff's car, inoperative windshield wipers. Navigating rainy roads without them for the next two days made instrument flying seem easy. The sheriff's car had already generated more than our share of notoriety on brief drives from our motel to Don and Marge's place and around town. People either knew it was the airport loaner car and wanted to know where we were from, or wondered if we were somehow truly the police. Now, lacking windshield wipers, we were forced to drive very slowly in the rain, backing up traffic. Everywhere we drove, drivers could be seen in our rearview mirror, pondering whether to pass what might be a police car. The wake was held Friday night in a little Lutheran chapel. Marge insisted on arriving an hour early, a trait that runs in my in-law's family. We were ushered into a small, uncomfortably warm room. 
Don's body was elevated in the coffin, my first close encounter with the deceased body of someone I knew. Showing early and staying four hours in a 12 by 12 room with an open casket containing an elevated body proved a bit traumatic. Would some of Don's friends like to share memories of the deceased? Asked the pastor once the memorial finally began. At first there was silence, but then a few people politely talked about how Don was always willing to help out. Being a retired butcher, the meat that was served at Don's house was always special, so a couple people commented about that. Then the room was again silent. Again, the minister requested reminiscences. Finally, someone else replied. I remember Don was always losing his glasses. Then another guy raised his hand and said, Let me tell you a story about Don's glasses. And he told about the time that Don had forgotten his glasses when he was up at the island and asked this fellow to pick up his glasses from his home and bring them with him to the island. For a joke, the guy had delivered a pair of butterfly rhinestone glasses in Don's case instead. Apparently Don didn't see the humor of it since he needed his glasses, so then they gave him his real glasses. Then another fellow told of the time Don dropped his glasses in the water while fishing from a boat in the Rainy River, and how he had taped poles to a rake handle to rake the bottom and had actually recovered those glasses. The crowning story from yet another party, none seemed to know the stories of the others, was that another time Don was fishing from his pier when his glasses fell off into the water. He tried to recover them with the rake, but unsuccessfully. There was nothing he could do but buy another pair. However, that winter, while ice fishing from the pier, he hooked the lost glasses with his fishing pole and reeled them in. At this point, someone else from the audience stood up, pointed at Don's prostrate body and said, In fact, I think those are the very same glasses he lost in the river that he's wearing right now. And that, by the way, pretty much sums up all the comments about Don from The Wake. The next morning was Don's funeral. We were attending the church memorial when Jean's sister, Joe, approached with a look of great concern and said, You're not driving the sheriff's car in the funeral procession, are you? And as soon as Jean saw that expression on her sister's face, she said, Yes, we are. Obviously, we were making light of a serious occasion. So I said to Jean after that conversation, If you think it's inappropriate to drive that car in the procession, let's not do it. But Jean said, Actually, Greg, Don would have appreciated this sheriff's car in his procession. He had a quirky sense of humor. So we started up the sheriff's car and drove far back in the procession so as not to threaten the dignity of the occasion. We disembarked at a little country cemetery on the edge of a wood surrounded by high grass. And I have never experienced more mosquitoes in my entire life from the moment we got out. Given summer heat, the ladies were in sundresses and the guys in short sleeve shirts, and everybody was instantly slapping and waving away mosquitoes. It would have been funny if it had not been so awful. Although a few of us had insect repellent in our cars to pass around, it was a very abbreviated ceremony. With all the itching and scratching, I neglected to check Don's epitaph, but glasses may well have been part of it. The ceremony quickly ended under the onslaught, and people rushed to their cars, 
though as family members, we were among the last to leave. Finally, after what seemed like forever under the mosquito assault, Jean and I hurried back to the sheriff's car. We didn't anticipate, however, that the car's engine wouldn't turn over. Perhaps it was because, like others, we turned on our headlights in the procession driving the few miles to the cemetery. But for whatever reason, the battery was entirely dead. Fortunately, Don's son Russ had jumper cables in his car. To a symphony of swatting and slapping, Russ, the pastor, and I jump-started the cruiser for our final sheriff's car journey back to the Baudette Airport to take off toward home. By 2 p.m. we were airborne. Gene's brother David asked us to circle Don's house, so we flew along the rainy river until spotting a red-shirted figure waving far below. We circled twice, waggled wings goodbye, and banked to flee mosquito country southwestward. We made it all the way to Colorado Springs that night, but not without one final adventure. Wow! Look at our ground speed, said Jean, pointing to the GPS. We were flying along on autopilot over flat country west of McCook, Nebraska, where we had refueled after departing Baudette. Now we surfed hazy but cloudless skies on the day's final 240-mile leg to Colorado Springs, where we planned to dine with our son and continue home the following morning. Sure enough, our speed over the ground was well above normal, especially considering we were battling headwinds. Simultaneously, I noted our flying carpet gradually pitching downward and our airspeed steadily climbing. Now, when your speed through the air increases at a fixed altitude with no power change, it means you've entered an updraft, and the autopilot is holding the plane from climbing. In other words, the plane is effectively diving downhill through rising air to maintain altitude. You can feel the nose pitch down, and therefore airspeed goes up. But unless you're tracing a ridge or a line of cumulus clouds, the updraft won't last. And we weren't doing either of those things. What goes up must come down, meaning something was about to happen. Just a little mountain wave, I told Jean. For those who are not familiar with the term, consider that wind flows over mountains like water flows over rocks in a brook. And like water over rocks, air rises on the upwind side of mountains and ridges and descends on the downwind side. Those of us who fly regularly in mountainous areas learn to visualize that flow and take advantage of it. For example, when the wind blows across a valley, there will be an updraft on the downwind side of the valley, so you can fly over to that side and get lift. Whereas on the upwind side of the valley, you're battling downdrafts. In extreme conditions, wind can tumble over itself downwind of rugged terrain, much like a breaking ocean wave, yielding severe turbulence and loss of control. But we were far from the mountains and today's air was smooth, so I wasn't worried about that. When it comes to mountain wave, the stronger the wind, the higher the terrain, and the more regular the ridge spacing, the greater the magnitude of up and down drafts, and the farther downwind the resulting up and down wave motion may extend from the mountains generating them. In strong enough winds, mountain wave can extend for 1 to 200 miles, or even more than that, downwind of the mountains. That was apparently the case today, because we were over flat land, still some 150 miles from the Rocky Mountains. 
Normally, what happens with mountain wave is that you enter an updraft, and to maintain altitude, you must pitch the nose down and accelerate. Then you encounter a downdraft, forcing you to pitch up to maintain altitude, and your airspeed drops way off. This cycle can continue for hours on end, aggravating on autopilot and exhausting when flown by hand. The easiest way to deal with it, traffic and terrain permitting, is to hand fly the airplane at level pitch attitude to maintain more or less constant airspeed and then accept whatever altitude variations you get. Anyway, having often experienced this phenomenon before, I just gazed at our increasing airspeed, expecting it to come down of its own accord when we met the inevitable subsequent downdraft. I calmly watched that airspeed needle climb, climb, climb while the nose pitched smoothly downward. But today, unlike ever before, that airspeed continued steadily rising some 30 knots until it was tickling the bottom of the yellow arc, above which one should operate only in smooth air to avoid breaking something. Hang on, I shouted to Gene. I'd barely disconnected the autopilot and shot power when, bam, brutal bumps dashed our heads against the ceiling, turned our stomachs, and flipped our cooler, releasing its contents into the back seat. Later, I'd find our luggage rearranged in the baggage compartment, along with my pen, which had flown from my shirt pocket over the back seat into the baggage compartment. Are we going to die? croaked Jean, cowering petrified in her seat. This from a rare individual who actually claims to enjoy turbulence. I reassured her as best I could between bumps that we were far above the ground and were flying appropriate maneuvering speed and level flight technique so the flying carpet was not going to disintegrate. I'm not sure how much she believed me, however. In decades of flying together, it was the only time I've ever seen her frightened in an airplane. We rode those bumps like aerial bronchbusters for some 45 eternal minutes, barely able to maintain altitude within plus or minus a thousand feet. Then it ended as suddenly as it had begun, and we were back in smooth air. We landed at Colorado Springs and dined with our son and his girlfriend in the airport's funky converted KC-97 Stratofreighter airplane restaurant. You actually dine in the airplane. Check it out if you're up there sometime. The next morning, we steered carefully homeward through wildfire smoke clogging Levita and Medano Passes. Along the way, we heard some guy in a Cessna 310 Radio Denver Center for flight following. He was cruising blithely along at 11,500 feet and apparently oblivious to the towering Sangre de Cristo Mountains ahead. I'm GPS direct to Pueblo, he told the controller, the same woman who'd helped us around thunderstorms a few days earlier. You need to get on the airway to avoid terrain at that altitude, she replied. The pilot radioed he wasn't sure where the airway was. Then go back to Alamosa and get on the airway toward Pueblo, she insisted. My minimum vectoring altitude there is 14,000 feet. The guy might never have seen the 14ers ahead in such poor visibility. You know, Greg, said Jean following the exchange, sometimes I think you're a little obsessive in planning these trips. But then I hear risky behavior like we just heard and realize your attention to detail is why we just flew safely through all kinds of weather to the Canadian border and back. As we departed the Rockies over high desert on the final stretch home, 
I found myself thinking, wow, Gene could have flown airlines this trip and we'd have missed the whole adventure. We saw lots of memorable sights, experienced lots of humor, had a few minor scares, and met some interesting characters. But for me, the defining moment of the trip had occurred while we bounced our way through mountain wave turbulence toward Colorado Springs. We will never forget Don's funeral, Jean told me at the time, cowering in her seat as we lurched along at maneuvering speed. And between the blue rainy river, an old sheriff's car, and this long journey north, I knew she was right. You can find lots of photos from this trip, including, of course, the sheriff's car at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. Thanks for riding along on today's Flying Carpet Adventure. Please help me continue this podcast by sharing your favorite Flying Carpet episodes on social media, posting reviews on your favorite podcast directories, and donating via my Greg Brown Flying Carpet website. Thanks in advance for your support. You can find photos from most episodes at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out my book of aviation adventure stories, Flying Carpet, The Soul of an Airplane, for which I was named Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. Learn about that and my other aviation books at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. Also at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, You'll find my views from the Flying Carpet Aerial Photography, available in fine art metal prints and pilot achievement plaques. Oh, and I'd appreciate hearing your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Follow my social media sites, most of which can be found by searching Greg Brown Flying Carpet, and consider joining my student pilot pep talk group on Facebook. Thanks again for joining me on today's Flying Carpet Cockpit Adventure. Music by Hannes Brown. See you next time.